I know this is a different worship service than what we typically do, but it's important that we do this worship service. You know, some of those songs we sang, I used to sing them when I was a kid in school. Some of you guys remember singing those songs in school? You know that I don't sing those anymore, right? We are living in a more and more secular society of revisionists and deconstructionists, and so it's important that we take time to remember the influence of the Christian faith on our nation and appreciate it. The reality is, if you don't hear it at church, you're probably not going to hear it. Many things I'm going to say today are going to be surprising to some who have been reared and raised in a secular education system that our nation is providing. In no way mean to be offensive, and we in no way want to blame or point fingers, but what we do want to do is we want to be thankful. We want to show gratitude to those who have made sacrifices, and we want to understand who our God is in light of all of this that is happening, so that we, as citizens of this nation and who claim Christ as our Savior and Lord, will know how to go forward and how to function most effectively. You know, with it being Memorial Day, we took some time to say thank you and recognize men and women who have provided so much in so many ways for our nation and community. Our nation and community have been blessed because of the sacrifices, the service, and the selflessness of so many people. Uh, all made sacrifices. They all were willing to step in, and some made the ultimate sacrifice with their own life. All of them stepped in and did jobs that not everyone would want to do, that, that, that were not popular or fun. Many of them caused harm to themselves so that others could be free. It was a selflessness. There was a self-sacrifice in it all. And so we want to say thank you for, for what they have done and what it is they mean to our nation, for the freedoms that they provide for us. And it's my hope that we, as followers of Jesus Christ and members of Living Hope, we would take time this weekend and reflect on the sacrifices of others. I would hope that everyone in our country would do that and think about the fact that what we have in freedom is not free, that it's come at a great price. And then we can celebrate different aspects. I know that some will celebrate this weekend the ability to excel in business and education because of this freedom. Some, the ability to exercise authority in the election of leaders because of this freedom. And some, to, to celebrate the ability to pursue justice under law because of our freedom. And some, the ability to be protected from foreign enemies because of the sacrifice of so many, because of their service, because of their selflessness. We who are Christians, we have all of that and more to be thankful for. There's something in particular to us that, that we need to hold to and remember and recall. We have the ability to gather in the name of Jesus and to worship God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. We think that normal, don't we? You know, the rest of the world does not. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are today worshiping in, in hidden places because their government will not allow them to pursue their faith publicly. We have this freedom. We, we read about it in the Constitution and in Bill of Rights. Here's what it says, straight, straight from the document. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or, important one, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We have religious freedom in this country. And we must hold to it. We must guard it by, by using it, by putting our faith into practice in the public discourse of politics, economics, education, and every sphere that God calls us to be in. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. The, free, the press here takes their freedom, don't they? 
They sure make sure that they are able to say what they say is true, what they believe, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Friends, we, we have a freedom here, and that freedom is under attack. There are those among our citizens who do not want us to be able to speak of our religious beliefs. Now, we need to understand that their rejection of our religious beliefs is a religious belief. To say anything about God is to speak of a religious belief. To say that you should not speak of God is a religious statement. To say that you are an atheist is to say you are not one who believes in God. But the reality of God still stands, which makes it a theological statement. So for those who want to say that we should speak uh, in our homes and in our churches about what we believe, but not in public, that is a religious statement. And they have the freedom to say it. But we must not be so foolish as to believe what they're saying is true because it's not, and it's not right. We have religious freedom, and we need to act on that freedom. In these days of cultural upheaval, it is vital that we stand for and vote for candidates that will enable us to exercise our religious freedom and select who will select and approve judges that will do the same. It's also important that we who are Christians understand what we believe in light of this religious freedom. Here's the fact. If you don't know what you believe and you have the freedom to believe it, it doesn't do you any good. We need to know what we believe so that we can utilize our religious freedom most effectively. And so we're in a series right now where we're talking about what it is we believe. We as a family of faith here at Living Hope, we have 13 articles that comprise the foundation of our belief. And so today we're we're going to dig deeper into what it is we believe. Last week we began by understanding the Bible. The Bible is of first importance. If you do not know the Word of God, you cannot know the will of God, and you cannot walk in the way of God. And so knowing Scripture enables us to know who God is, who we are, and what's happening in our world. The second thing we need to make sure we understand and what clearly is spoken to in Scripture is who God is, the very nature of God. Our God is a God. He is one God who has revealed himself in three persons. And we need to understand what that means. The term we use to describe that reality is the Trinity. We believe that there is one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the second article of our Articles of Faith. And I want us to read this out loud together. This is Article 2 of our Articles of Faith. Read this out loud with me. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that these three persons are equal in divinity and glory, and yet each has personal attributes and distinct functions. Because of his triune nature, God is both transcendent over all of creation and personally involved in this world as the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. This statement of faith that we're going to dig in today uh, requires that we also dig into the other three that follow it. The Article 3, Article 4, and Article 5, each one of those deal with God as the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so today, as we dig into the Trinity, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to get explanation of those other articles as well. Now understand that study of the Trinity is typically an entire seminary course. In some instances, the study of the Trinity is 
actually a, a study of several courses that come under one heading. And so we've got a lot that we can say, and there's a lot that I can point to. And while I would love to go into explaining the errors that exist about the Trinity and to, and to unfold for you the history of the Trinitarian controversy and church history and to, and to really point to the epistemological reality of the Trinity and, and how it affects how we perceive reality, we don't have time. You guys want to go to lunch later, right? So what we're going to do is this. We're going to focus on a single text. We're going to look at a text that, that, is, that is lengthy, but as we read it, I want you to notice three distinctives of it. It speaks of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and then the church, we, His people. And, and in that, I want us to understand who God is and what we are to do with those who follow Him love Him and have come under His authority. Uh, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, I want you to take it out, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. As you go there, let me just tell you that there are uh, resources that I've made available on social media. Last week, I, I know I, I overwhelmed you. I gave you like 20 books that you can read. This week, I've, I've only shown you three books that I would recommend for study in the Trinity. Again, it's on Facebook, Instagram, all that. And I also gave you an infographic to, to show you some errors to avoid when thinking about the Trinity. We're going to speak to one of those in just a moment. But right now, let's, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Madison Bartlett is going to come and read for us the entire chapter. So let's all stand together in honor of God's Word. I know it's a lot. She's practiced hard. She can do it, all right? Ephesians chapter 1. Madison, if you would. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praises of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that he who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and your love towards all those saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eye of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rules and authority and the power and the dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Madison. Good job, girl. Go ahead and have a seat. Well done. Well done. Now, God is a triune God, and that means many things. Our text today reveals many of the distinctions of the personhood of God. And again, we could take an entire year and study a little more than this text, looking at the distinctions of each of the persons of the Trinity. But what we're going to do today, what the Spirit of God has led me to do, is to focus on one function of each of the persons of the Trinity. Now, no sooner do I tell you that, that there should be an alarm that goes off in your head that what I'm doing is dangerous. We who communicate the gospel, we often want to take mysteries and simplify them so that they are easily understood. The Trinity is not easily understood, and there is often error found in every illustration that is given. And so I am, I am not going to give illustrations, although I've done that in the past. And the reason I'm going to try to stop doing that is because I know error will come out of that. Ultimately, the Trinity is a mystery. And there's very few human forms or, or created things that can describe this reality. And the fact that I'm going to speak about the Trinity from a functional perspective should raise alarm in your head. Because this is one of the errors that happens in theology, in doctrine, in studying the Bible that creates confusion. When we talk about the functionality of the persons of the Godhead, there is the tendency, or there's even the, the very strong possibility, that we will fall into a specific error, and that error is called modalism. I want to, I'm not going to explain it, I'm just going to tell you what it is, so that you can be mindful of what it is, so that you don't hear me speaking of this error, using this error, and that you don't fall into the trap that, that is certainly there when we talk about the functionality of the personhood uh, within the Godhead. Modalism claims that there is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. The fatal shortcoming of modalism is the fact that it must deny the personal relationships within the Trinity. Thus, it must deny. Uh, it, it must, thus, it must deny three separate persons at the baptism of Jesus, where the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And it must say that all those instances where Jesus is praying to the Father are an illusion or a charade. The idea of the Son or the Holy Spirit interceding for us before God the Father is lost. And so it's important that we understand when I'm talking about the functionality of each person that we do not think that there is somehow a division in God. God is one. He has revealed himself in three persons. What we are going to do is we're going to take apart this text by looking at each of the persons of the Godhead in one function of each. There are more than one function, and so I want to encourage you to take your Bibles today and the outline I've given you and expand upon it. Take time and talk uh, as husband and wife, as family, amongst friends, 
about the other aspects of the, of the work of each person that is revealed in this text. Today, I'm going to take time just to show you one function of each and then speak to the reality at the, at the last part of this chapter of what we who believe in Jesus are called to be and to do in light of who God is. So take note of this. Our triune God is, first of all, the Father who adopts us. Who adopts us. I want you to notice that Paul is writing to a church, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. A church is composed of baptized believers who have committed themselves not only to Christ, but to one another. We had a young man who was baptized this morning. He made public profession of his saving faith in Jesus Christ. He is now a candidate for membership. Doesn't make him a member makes him a Christian. Coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ makes you a part of the church, the universal church, the grand church that has existed uh, since, since God has called the people to, to himself. We are baptized to make public profession. But from there, each of us must commit ourselves not only to Christ, but to a local church. Paul is writing to a local church, and each of us is called, each of us who is saved by grace and faith in Christ alone, are called to be members of a local church. At the beginning of our own Articles of Faith, the first thing we do is we define what a church is, and we speak to our Articles of Faith in light of our understanding of what a church is. And so this is what it says in our Articles of Faith. Scripture depicts a local church as a community of believers in a particular place committed to gather together on a regular basis to worship God and fulfill His mission to the world. Within this community, our unity in Christ compels our commitment to one another. Membership in a local church is therefore participation in a, what's that word? Family. It's not an institution. It's a family. To say that you are a member of Living Hope is to say that you have brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family who have been adopted by God the Father. It says in our text that He adopted us. It's important to understand where that came from. He pursued us. He provided the means by which we can be saved. Only those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone are in Christ, are under the authority of God the Father as adopted children, and are able to be members of the local church. What does that mean? I say this all the time, and I do hope that it's beginning to sink in just a little bit, that, that you can repeat this to yourself, that you can draw this at any time, to understand what the, what the gospel is. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means you understand God's design was for harmony. And the reason our world is filled with so much brokenness and pain and sickness is because of sin. But God did not abandon us to our sin. Instead, He sent Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about in just a moment, to be the, the, the propitiation, that is, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So if we repent and believe, repent, turn away from sin and a life under our authority, and believe, that is, believe that Jesus is God, that He died for our sin, that He is raised and alive, and we are placing our lives under His authority, we can then pursue and recover God's design. That's what a Christian is. Do you believe that? 
Do you understand that? It's not simply about saying something. It's about being something. It's not about committing yourself to a cause or to an institution. It's about being in a family. I received an email this week. It's typical of emails that I will receive regularly. But I I wanted to read it, and I wanted to give you uh, an answer that I know that some of you have asked. You've asked yourselves this. We all do. And some of you have asked me, and I've given an answer. But I want our church to understand how to rightly respond to this question. Dear Pastor, do you think that one can say the sinner's prayer with their mind without it going to their hearts? What are they asking me? Is a person truly saved who only is a Christian in their words only? we got to think about this. What, what, what does it mean to be a Christian is what they're asking. So the question is, do you think that, that one can say the sinner's prayer with their mind without it going to their hearts? And here's what I responded. That sure, we can say anything. The issue is not the words we say, but the faith we possess. Our words and lies speak of our faith. If we do not repent of sin in word and deed and confess Christ in word and deed, we are just saying words. Faith in the gospel of Jesus and the grace and mercy he gives saves us. Faith is not a concept we think, but the foundation and hope of our being and actions. Who is the child of God? The person who has repented and believed in Jesus Christ and who is now living under his authority. It is not a person who simply makes truth claims. It is a person who makes those claims and then lives those claims under under the authority of God the Father. Once we become believers, we become members of God's eternal family. We must repent, that is, turn away from our old life under our authority and believe that Jesus Christ is alive and that we can live under His authority. That is what makes us a child of God. Repentance and belief are a response to what God has done. And what has God done? He has chosen us. He has adopted us. And why? Why did God choose us? Why did God adopt us? The, the scripture is very clear that we would be holy holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, that we would be holy. Why did God adopt us? Why did God the Father adopt us? So that we would be like him. We have many families who are currently pursuing uh, international adoption. We have many who have gone through that process. A family in our congregation recently went through the international adoption process. What did they do? First, they chose a child that they were going to adopt. Then they made a great financial uh, payment that made it possible for them to adopt a child. Then they had to go over to that country and they had to get legal status so that that child would become legally theirs. They then brought that child home to raise that child to become like them. This is what God the Father has done for us. He chose us. And then at great cost to himself, that is the blood of Jesus Christ, paid for us, paid for our sins. He has made us legally and eternally His by the, by the work, as we'll talk about in a minute, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Father has made us His own, His own child. For what purpose? That we would become like Him. Why does a parent adopt a child? To raise the child to become like them. Why has God the Father adopted us? To make us like Him. 
so that we would be holy, so that we would be like our Father. Let me ask you, have you received this gift? Are you living like the Father? If you are not living like the Father in a desire to be like the Father, there's every reason for you to doubt if you are the Father's child. The Father adopts us to make us like Himself. How does He do that? Well, He's done that through Jesus Christ. So make note. Our triune God is the Son who redeems us. And so what we see is that the the adopted children of God are made holy by one thing. The blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It is only through the blood of Jesus that our sin can be atoned for. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we can have peace with God. He is our propitiation. That is, He has satisfied the just demands of a holy God. Our holy God demands justice. And when Jesus died, the punishment that our sin demands was poured out on Christ so that He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he knew no he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ came to, to, to die for us. He became one of us so he could live like us, not like us, but in our place for us, a holy life that we can't live to die for our sins and to be raised. And this is spelled out so clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God the Son came and lived a holy life. God took on flesh. He did not sin, but he was tempted in every way. And he is victorious. And so he, in his holiness, he came and he provided an eternally powerful redemption for all who believe. Please understand. Sin demands death. Because we have sinned against God, God is eternal and holy. That means that the punishment is eternal against the holy God. In order for us to be saved, we needed that which is eternal to come into flesh to pay an eternally powerful price for our redemption. And that's what God did. God paid for our sin through His Son to set us free. And that's what God has done for us. Now, Satan can intimidate us, but he can't have us because we are now blood-bought children of the Most High God of Heaven, who is our Father, who He has adopted us. Now, what makes that possible is the Holy Spirit. Now, notice how we are sealed in Him. Take note of this. Our triune God is the Spirit who seals us. This latter part in, in verses 13 through 14, though it's brief, it says a lot. When we hear and believe, we are made righteous. The Holy Spirit gives us the life to believe. And when we believe, we are sealed. That word is important. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. I appreciate uh, John MacArthur's commentary on, on Ephesians. Here's what he says about this section when it talks about this, this becoming and being made alive in the Holy Spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in his life. Life in Jesus Christ is different because the Spirit of God is now within. He is there to empower us, equip us for ministry, and function through the gifts he has given us. 
The Holy Spirit, look at this, is our helper and advocate. He protects and encourages us. He also guarantees our inheritance in Christ Jesus. The way you think about this seal is to think about the, the cultural context in which this term came from. In the context, what someone would do, uh, an authority, would create a document. That document would be folded, and then there would be a wax that would, that would hold that document in place. And then the authority would have typically a signet ring that they would press upon that seal, and then everyone who saw that document would know this has the authority of the person who has bound it, who is giving it. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. For those of us who believe, we are sealed until the day of judgment. We are not sealed so long as we, we live up to some kind of moral standard. No, 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 no. Yes, we live in obedience to Christ, and that lets us know that we are assured of our salvation. But what seals our salvation is the life of God in the Holy Spirit in us. We are sealed until the day of judgment. And so what we have in God is the Father who adopts us, the Son who redeems us, and the Holy Spirit who seals us. Now, the important question we need to be asking ourselves is, why? I know you were asking earlier, why did I make that poor girl read the entire first chapter of Ephesians? What we should have been asking is, why is the second part of Ephesians so important that we need to know it in light of the first part? Because the first part explains the doctrine. The last part explains our response. Why? Why has the Father done this, the Son done this, the Holy Spirit? What does this, what does this have to do with us? Understand, it is they, they have done this, He has done this, to make us a loving church that is serving, sacrificial, and selfless. Understand, to, to be in Christ is to be faithful and loving. Look what Paul said. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Uh, life in Christ is a grateful life. I do not cease to give thanks. Life in Christ is a prayerful life, remembering you in my prayers. It's a wise life that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. It is, and I want to take some time our remaining moments here to speak to this, and I, I pray that, that you will take this to heart. It's obedient. Those who are in Christ are obedient to Christ. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, who feels all in all. To be a Christian is to be obedient to God under the authority of the Father in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if we are not pursuing obedience to God, if we do not desire to be obedient to God, we can know, we can know that there's something wrong. I cannot tell you that you're not safe. Praise God, I don't have that responsibility because I, I, I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't deserve it. Only God, only God has the power and the right to give judgment to you. But I do, I do think it's important that we understand that only, only those who are truly obedient to God are God's. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. This makes sense to me. Only the believer is obedient, and only those who are obedient are obedient. Why do I make such a big deal of this? 
Because we live in a nation where there is a false gospel. And there is this idea that what we need is a, an American gospel. And that gospel says that the purpose of Jesus Christ coming is so that we can be happy and have things and be in control of, of everything else that happens in our world. That is not... Materialism is not the purpose of the gospel. What is the purpose? God's glory and our salvation. What, is, what brings God glory? Our willful, glad obedience to His Word and His authority in our life. God does not force us. He does not force us to love Him. If you do not love Him, that is your choice. Understand the eternal consequences of that decision. But do know this. God loves you. God wants to save you. He wants to save you to a life that is obedient to Him. Why? Because God knows what's best for us. He is the ultimate Father. He has sent His Son to set us free that we might live in the power of the Holy Spirit and have a blessable life. Does that describe your life today? Are you clearly under the authority of God the Father in the name of Jesus and His blood, living in the power of the Holy Spirit? If you are, you have a great freedom. That primary freedom is this. You can go to God the Father and you can ask anything according to His will in the name of Jesus and receive it. But let me say this. Tim Keller wrote this. I had some pushback in social media on this. I'm not going to argue it. I'm just going to say it. There's no use asking God for things when you are being disobedient. God answers the prayers of those who are pursuing obedience to Him. If you are not obedient to Him, understand because you don't believe. Those who believe, obey. Your belief will always be revealed, not so much in your words, but in your actions. Ask yourself this question. Is it clear that you are living under the authority of Jesus Christ? If not, you need today to repent and believe. Maybe it's not for salvation. Maybe it's for recommitment. You need today to bring your life under the authority of Jesus Christ. And here's why. We are living in a dark day. Like never before, the light needs to shine. This mediocre, watered-down Christianity that has sufficed for a few decades will no longer do. We must be salt and light. What does that look like? Obedience to God the Father in the name of Christ the Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want to ask you, first of all, for yourself to come and pray and ask God to transform your life. And I would ask you today to come and pray for our nation. See, we don't... We... We don't need another human being who is sinful to make more promises that they're not going to keep you. I hope your hope is not in this next election. You know what we need? We need Almighty God to do what only He can do, which is to change our life, to be filled with love and hope and obedience to the Father. Can you imagine a nation made up of Husbands and wives living in obedience to God, 
training their children to live in obedience to God so that they can leave their father and mother and be united to their husbands and wives and become one flesh and produce another generation of disciples who are obedient to God. Can you get a vision for that? Let's pray for that today. Let's pray for our nation. Let's stand together as we pray. Lord God, so much to be said that has been unsaid. So much truth that is that is there, still left there in the text. But Lord God, I pray that the Holy Spirit has brought understanding that you, Lord Jesus, have been honored and, and that, Father, you, you are sending uh, the Spirit and, and has sent the Spirit to do work. God, I pray for those today who will come and pray that you'll hear them, that they come humbly to ask you to do what only you can do, to change their life and to change the trajectory of our nation, that, that we might be a, a people that have the blessing of, of those who are living under, under your direction that salt and light in a culture that gives it direction and hope. Lord, hear the prayers of your people as they come down. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and pray as we sing together.